beautiful day out there, isn't it? I just came in praising the Lord because of His creation, and, and I enjoyed praising the Lord with you guys this morning, singing to Him, and, and uh, what a great time. I also want to thank you for the warm reception that you've given to us once again. Uh, I, came back, I came here a few weeks ago, and you guys welcomed us with open arms, and, and uh, once again, uh, praying with us, and just encouraging us in the hallways, and I just want to thank you for that. Uh, we've really in, enjoyed that. Today, uh, I'd like to take us to a text in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Pretty popular uh, verses. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, an analogy that the writer of Hebrews gives us of the Christian life, saying that the Christian life is much like a race. Uh, now, do we have any runners in here? Nobody? Okay, we have at least one. All right, there's got to be a few of you who run. Okay, I know none of you are running uh, probably in, a, in the Boston Marathon or anything like that. But it might surprise you know, to know that I actually went to the Boston Marathon when I was in college. But it probably won't surprise you to know that I, I didn't run in the Boston Marathon. <laughs> uh, but I love sports. I really do. It, they're a lot of fun. But to me, I'd rather run to get a ball or you know, to, to beat my opponent to the, to the puck or something, whatever it might be. But, uh, but running just for the sake of running uh, isn't what I've done. But I really developed an appreciation when I went to the Boston Marathon and had a chance to see some serious runners and see how seriously they take they're running. And so uh, let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12 today. Um, and we're going to try and cover uh, uh, several things today. So I'm going to try and fly through some of this. But let's read uh, the verses here. And starting verse 1, it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author of and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I know these are only two short verses, but we're going to try and cover a lot because there's a lot in these verses. And today, this is what we're going to try and cover. First, uh, joining the race. It's important to join the race, right? And make sure you're a part of the Christian race. And if you're not a part of that, I hope you don't leave today knowing for sure that you're a part of the Christian race. After that, we're going to talk about preparing for the race. How do you prepare for the, for the Christian race? After that, running the race. And then lastly, finishing the race. So today, the sermon will be a race, because we're going to try and cover all of that in one day. But let's do that together. Let's look uh, first at joining the race. Um, in uh, Hebrews 12, uh, 1 and 2, it begins by saying, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... And that's how the writer of Hebrews begins this passage and uh, uh, begins to compare the, the, this whole analogy to the, to the Christian race. And he says that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. But who are these witnesses and, and what, what are they? Uh, where does it come from? And, and really, I think the clue find, we find right there in verse 1, the very first, uh, very first word is, therefore. So whenever we see a therefore, what do we ask? What's it? Therefore, exactly. And so it connects us to what was going on back in chapter 11. Now, we don't, we don't have time to go into all of Hebrews 11 today, but in Hebrews chapter 11, what do we find? We find the great hall of faith, it's oftentimes called. And we read about the, the, the men and women from the Old Testament who had great levels of faith. And so when we look at uh, this great cloud of witness, who are they? What we find, is, if we look in chapter 11, is we find Abel, Noah, Abraham, Enoch, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and so on. And the list goes on and on of people, men and women, in the Old Testament that had a great level of faith. They were the heroes of the Old Testament. Fallible heroes, yes. 
All of them had sin, yes. But they were the heroes of this. And then, then you go to chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, Therefore, let us lay, or, or since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. In other words, the great cloud of witnesses are all those who have already gone, gone before. All those who have already participated in the race. They've already reached the finish line of the race, right? They, they've already been there. So, uh, so how did they join the race? How did those men and women join the race? Well, if you look in chapter 11, uh, what does it say in verse 3? It says, that it's by faith that we understand. Uh, if you go to verse 4, by faith, Abel offered. Uh, if you go into to, to verse 5, you see, by faith, Enoch was taken from this. Like, by faith, Noah in verse 7. Uh, by faith, Abraham in verse, verse 8. Uh, and you can go on and on through the chapter. What two words do we see attached to every single person that's in this great cloud of witnesses? Two words? By faith. How did they join the race? By faith. You know, if you're trusting in anything else today, if you're trusting in how good you may be compared to other people in the world, is that going to get you to heaven? Absolutely not. If you're trusting in how good your parents were, is that going to get you to heaven? Absolutely not. If you're, com- if, you're, if you're leaning on maybe something that you have done or money that you've given to the church or something that you none of those things will earn you a place in heaven. Right. Only when you have faith in what God has revealed to us and said, Jesus Christ paid for your sins. You can't earn heaven. You can't deserve heaven. Jesus Christ paid for your sins on the cross. Amen? Amen. And so do not leave today understanding that, that that is, that, that is really how we join the race. Not by anything that we do, it's by faith. In, uh, in fact, in Hebrews 11, verse 6, it begins the great hall of faith with this verse, and it says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. And in the context, him is God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It doesn't matter what good things you do. If there's no faith, it's void. It's useless. Do you think it's possible? Let me ask that question. Do you think it's possible that someone could run the entire Christian race, reach the finish line, they die, and when it comes to the judgment, they actually stand before God and find out they were never actually in the race? Is that possible? I believe it is. In fact, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll stay camped in uh, Hebrews uh, 11 today, but I do want to look, uh, and I'll read uh, uh, from Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Imagine that. People that are at the judgment waiting for their, their rewards for all of these things. And they've done some pretty religious things, right? Things that I've never done. I've never performed a miracle or anything like that, right? Um, these people are going to be in for the shock. Not really of their lives, but they're shocked of eternity. Because Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. We never had a relationship. Depart from me. And I'll tell you right now, more than anything... I don't want anyone that's in this room today to leave and have this happen to them when they stand before Jesus Christ. So later on, I'll give you an opportunity because it's important to me that nobody leaves here today without knowing that you've joined the race. 
that you're a part of the race. And, uh, uh, but these people had at least some type of faith, and they got, to, they got to heaven, or they will get to heaven, and find out it was wrong. And I think that's because we find that there's really two kinds of faith. If we can, if we can talk about it this way, there's a type of faith that, that really brings us to failure. This is the type of faith that the men had, men and women had in, in the Matthew 7 context. They get to heaven and, yeah, they did things. They, they, they proclaimed that God was God and that Jesus was Jesus. They did religious things, but they had a simple faith. Whereas the faith that we find in Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12 is a completely different type of faith. It's a saving faith. Really, if we look at the, just looking at the verses that we have today, we'll find that there are a couple of differences, just to make sure we clarify this. One, a simple faith is a type of faith that really doesn't produce anything. It's a mere intellectual assent. You know, things that we know, but it's not really going to produce an action, whereas the saving faith is productive. Why can we say that? Well, because as we read in chapter 11, by faith, there's always a verb following that. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice. By faith, uh, Noah prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went to a foreign country. By faith, Moses forsook uh, uh, Egypt. By faith, they acted. Real faith is the type of faith that isn't going to just sit there in the mind, but it's going to be put into action. Amen? I mean, if it's real faith, it's going to produce fruit. It's going to show up. Reminds me of a time when some scientists showed up at my cousin's door, and they knocked on his door, and they said... This mountain, this pretty mountain that you're on, is not a mountain, it's a volcano. And uh, we don't know when it's going to blow, but it's going to blow, right? Uh, someday. It could be a week, it could be 10 years, it could be 20 years, we don't know. And so he, they had the scientific data, and my cousin's pretty smart, and he looked it over, and, uh, and he said, yeah, it's true. Uh, the scientific data is there. That's mere intellectual assent. But what did he do with that mere intellectual assent? He had faith, and so he left. And he, he moved 45 minutes away. By the way, that was Mount St. Helens. <laughs> 45 minutes away, he still had ash, about 6 to 8 inches of ash in his backyard. Even though he lived 45 minutes away, had he not moved, uh, he would not be on this earth today. Why? Because real faith is productive. It actually does something. By faith, we obey. It's by faith. If there's no faith, we don't. We also can find, from the context here, that a simple faith is the type of faith that draws back. And what I mean by that is that it loses courage when it gets tested. Um, let's take a look at um, uh, what we find in the same context in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. Now the just shall live by faith. But anyone who draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the what? To the saving of the soul. The writer of Hebrews is, is, is helping us understand that real faith is not the kind that, gets, that draws back when there's a test. and Oh, I believe, I believe, but as soon as there's a threat, oh, no, I don't believe, I don't believe. That's not faith. Real faith, the kind that, that sticks it out, is the kind of faith that he's talking about. And so real faith, saving faith, perseveres in trial. Now, is there anything, are there any works that we have to do to receive salvation? Absolutely not. We don't work because 
we want to get salvation, we work because Jesus has already provided the salvation. Amen? And if we believe in that, then it, that is going to affect the way we live our lives. I like the way James uh, put it. He said, uh, faith without works is dead. It's not real faith. I know we spent a lot of time on this first one, um, but I think it's the most important one, that, you're jo- that you've joined the race. So I want to ask you just a couple of questions to reflect on some of this. Uh, which type of faith have I been relying on? Am I a true son of God? Or am I relying on someone else's qualification? Or does my faith reflect a genuine life change? And what am I going to do about it? Before you leave today, I want to give you an opportunity. If you're not sure, or maybe you thought you were saved, and, and you're one of those people that, that, uh, that uh, Jesus describes in Matthew 7, and say, I don't want to go to heaven and find out that I, I wasn't one of his own, then don't leave today. I know we've got some things scheduled. We'll work that out, okay? Uh, because that is more important, that you don't leave today without knowing that. Well, joining the race. Next, let's look at preparing for the race. Preparing for the race. Let's go back to our main verses in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, uh, verse, uh, starting with uh, verse 1, where in the middle of the verse, it says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. So let us lay aside two things. I find this very interesting, especially from a runner's perspective. I, I've uh, done a lot of running long distance, but, um, but I've done some backpacking long distance, and, and some of this concept of weight actually makes some sense uh, to me. But what we find here is that there are two things that we're supposed to lay aside, and I want to make sure we understand the difference between them, because sometimes I think we notice one and we don't notice the other. But So I'm going to start with the easy one. The, there's the sin that ensnares us, the sin that entangles us. I love the imagery that the writer of Hebrews uses here because if you're running a race and your shoes are untied, what's going to happen? Yeah, you're going to trip over them. Uh, and so uh, if, you're, if you're running a race, the last thing on earth you want is to get tangled up in anything, right? And so you want to make sure that your shoes are tied and, and so on a double knot or whatever you do to make sure and, uh, because it's very important. And you know what? Sin does that to us. In our Christian walk. Jesus Christ paid for all of our sins, right? They're paid for. But as we run the race, can the sins still trip us up? Can they slow us down? They sure can. In fact, every time we sin, it trips us up and it slows us down. And so if we're going to run the Christian race, and if there's some type of sinful habit that's in, going on in our lives, then guess what? It is time to surrender that to the Lord and give it to Him. And say, I, I'm not going to allow this sin in my life. And oftentimes we categorize sins in our own minds. Like, well, this is a small sin. And so at least I can hang on to this small sin. If there's any sin that you, are, that you know about and you're hanging on to it, it's going to trip you up. But that's not the only thing we find here. We're not to, just to lay aside the sin, but we're also to lay aside what? The weight that hinders. It's the weight. Now, what's the difference between sin and weight? Are there things, for example, in the Boston Marathon that you are allowed to do, that you are allowed to carry, but you'll never see anyone carry? Now, I noticed when I went to the Boston Marathon, not a single person, not one, wore moon boots. Remember the moon boots? Anyone old enough to remember moon boots? Right. Not one. Not one wore winter boots. Not one wore a jacket. Not one had a backpack. 
Why? Is it against the rules? No, but it's weight. Weight is really anything that may not be sin in and of itself, but it becomes sin if it's going to slow you down spiritually. Have you thought about that? There might be things, and oftentimes I think we ask the wrong questions, and and we think, well, this activity, is it sin? No one can prove to me it's sin, therefore I can do it. Uh, Well, we have to back up there a little bit. Is it going to help you? Is it going to speed you up? Or is it going to slow you down? There are things in life that are not sin in and of themselves, but they do become sin when they slow us down. For example, is it a sin to eat ice cream? I hope not. If so, I'm in trouble. I love ice cream. It's not a sin. Can it become a sin? Sure it can. If I'm eating ice cream uh, three times a day, right, or whatever it might be, or whatever it might be, or even if I've promised the Lord that I'm going to go on a diet for a period of time, and I've made a vow to Him, it's still sin, isn't it? TV. Is TV, is it a sin to watch TV? Depending on what you're watching, but let's assume for now we're watching something wholesome. Is it a sin to watch TV? No. Can it become a sin? It sure can. I remember in a Principles of Christian Living class uh, that we had at, a, uh, at an ins- a Bible Institute, and one of the things that everyone had to do was write down everything they did in 15-minute increments for an entire week. And I would look at those, and it blew me away. How much time was spent in front of the TV? There were some who spent over six hours a day. How in the world did they do anything else? Six hours a day. Can you imagine that? But you know what? TV can become a sin if it's a weight. Um, this, I don't know if you can see the picture very well, but uh, this, that's me on the right, and that's my son on the left, uh, Aiden. And uh, he's carrying a canoe over his head. And uh, we take these trips, so we've, we've been taking uh, these trips out of my home church for many years. And, and so I've been out to what they call Algonquin Provincial Park in Canada. It's about four hours north of Toronto. And you are, for eight days, you're either carrying your, your canoe and backpack or you're rowing your canoe, uh, paddling your canoe and backpack for eight straight days. And you have to carry everything you take. It's a, it's a long, hard trip. But to me, this was the closest analogy I could find to this co- concept of weight because when, when you look at the weight, we would do everything we could to reduce the weight. In fact, every, every year we'd, start, we'd have a little packing party and we'd start packing all the things and anyone who was new would come and they could never fit everything in their backpack. Never. And we'd have to go through and we'd start saying, no, you don't need this, you don't need that. You know, no, there's no electricity, sorry, you can't take your curling iron. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm not exaggerating, that's the truth. We've had to take curling irons out of there and help people learn how to pack, how to reduce their weight so that they could endure the entire race, the entire distance. And sometimes, uh, when we had some, uh, some of the guys, we were zealous enough to try and go about 120 miles, which in the rough wilderness like that, that's a lot of miles. And we would get up in the dark, and we would go to bed in the dark. And uh, some of us were so serious about it to see how far we could go that we would plan out our routes, and we would cut the corners of the map so that we wouldn't have to carry that extra weight. It's paper. It's paper. But you know what? It's weight. Because we were serious about it. And I'll tell you, at, at the Boston Marathon, uh, my job there was just to sell socks, blister-free socks that were a little bit lighter than everybody else's, but twice the price. And we sold them as fast as we could. And, and uh, 
and you know, if you ever want to hear the story about uh, what happened there, because the van broke down and we had a couple hundred thousand dollars of cash in bags, duffel bags, in the middle of the night going through Boston, not a great idea. But I'll tell you what, why? It's because those runners were serious about reducing their weight so they could run with endurance. It's preparing for the race. I wonder how many of us have that level of commitment when it comes to running the race that God has put before us. So what's keeping you from running faster or from running longer in the Christian race? Are you tangled up in any sinful habits? Are there hobbies that take up too much of your time? Are there friendships that are bringing you down spiritually? Are there habits that hinder your walk with God? Are there personal goals that slow you down spiritually? Whether it's, uh, or are, are there any fears that are keeping you from obeying God? And remember, sin or weight? Are you willing to give it up today to run the race that God has laid out for you? All right, we've talked about joining, preparing for the race. Now let's talk about running the race. So if we look at verse 2, um, we find, uh, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Two things we find in here. First, it says to run with endurance. When you hear the, those words, run with endurance, do you think in terms of, say, a 100-yard dash? Or do you get the image of running a marathon? Which one? A marathon. Okay, so we do have some runners in here, right? Because in a in 100-yard dash, you can just go all out and go 100%, and you aim right for that finish line, and, and, and there's no holding back. But when you run a marathon, you're going to go through stages. You're going to hit points where, uh, where it hurts. Now, I haven't run a marathon. My wife has run a half marathon. But she could tell you, as well as any of the other runners in here could tell you, what I call the principle of the second wind. And that is simply that when you're running, you run to the point where it hurts, and then what do you do? You keep running. And eventually, what happens? You get that second wind. You get that uh, ability to work through that. The Christian life is going to be like that. Some of you may have come today, and you've been running the race, and you're hurt. Some of you might be here today, and it's been rough. And you come today... And, and I'm telling you, if you just keep doing it, doing what God tells us to do, being faithful, step after step after step, it does get better, doesn't it? It does. We have to run with endurance. But it doesn't just say run with endurance. It uh, clarifies that. It says, and let us run with endurance, what? The race that is set before us. You know, in any race, uh, there, there's a, a course marked out. Both of my kids were involved in cross-country this, this year. And the first time that they ran the race, several of the kids did what? Took shortcuts or missed things, missed turns or whatever, and they get disqualified, right? That's just the nature of, of learning the course because it is important to run the course that is set before you. Don't, uh, don't take detours or shortcuts. God has put a course out for us. There are things where you say, no, no, this is off limits. Don't, don't go that way. Go this way. There are other places, oh, we're going to go this way. No, don't go that way either. Stay the course that God has set before us. But so many times we want to take the shortcuts. And you know what? Many times when we sin, the desire that we're actually trying to fulfill is not a bad desire. But it's a shortcut that, tries, that we take to get there 
and, and, and we lose everything that God really wants for us. Take, for example, um, is, it a, is it wrong to want good grades? We have some students in here, I'm sure. Anyone studying? We had some graduates, I heard. So, is it wrong to want good grades? Is there a shortcut to good grades? Yeah. Sometimes it's peeking over at someone else's paper or asking a friend if you can copy their answers. Yeah, you can get a good grade. That's a shortcut. Stay the course that God has put before you. Why? Because cheating is easy. Studying is hard. Studying is a hard way. But you'll be all the wiser for it. And you can apply that to so many things. Uh, I think of uh, uh, intimacy, relational intimacy. How many of us want that? Right? Of course we do. Well, there might be an easy way. Maybe you've been struggling in your relationship with your spouse, and, but someone at work is, is really admiring you and showing interest in you and pursuing you. And uh, that the shortcut would be to say, well, just dump my wife and, and go, go with this, this other person. That's the shortcut. But is that the course that, that, that God has laid out for us? Absolutely not. But if we stick it out and we build our relationship and we build and we, we foster relationship with our own spouse, can we have marital intimacy? Absolutely. Much greater than what any, anyone in the world can even experience. Amen? Husbands, you should be saying amen to that, right? <laughs> of course, amen. And, and, so I, and I can tell you today that the relationship I have with my wife today it brings me more joy than the relationship I had with her when we first got married. But does it work? Sure it is. Sure it is. Stay the course that God has set before us. So we've talked about joining the race, preparing for the race, running the race. And I want to look uh, finally at finishing the race. We find in uh, verse 2, uh, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What's the goal of this race? Who are we to strive to be like? We're supposed to put our eyes on one person and one person alone, and that person is Jesus Christ himself. He, that's the goal. Has anyone ever gotten there yet? Okay, my hand's not up. I was just... <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not there either. So, does, so are we done? Sometimes I think in life we get to this point where we feel like I've done so much, I'm just going to stop now. I'm just going to relax. I'm going to retire from the, the Christian race. Sorry, we don't do that, do we? We continue to run the race until we're like Jesus Christ. And guess what? We're not going to be like Jesus Christ until we die. Amen? And, and even then, he's going to have his place. <laughs> right? So we, the Bible does say we will be like him. It's in a limited context, right? But our goal is to be like Christ. To be like him. And when I think of the measure of mercy that he showed on sinners, when I think of, of the love that he has, when I think of how he sacrificed himself on the cross, I have some, I have some ways to go still. Don't you? So we're on this race together. But our goal is the same. It's to be like Jesus Christ. Also, we find that our model is Christ. But if we look uh, uh, at the rest of that verse, it says... Uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And then it describes, it says, Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured, there's that word endurance again, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the model. Jesus is the model. He endured so much. 
I wish we had time to describe what he endured even on the cross for us. But he endured that for us. But how could he endure that? How could he endure the things that were going on? Because he wasn't looking at the present. Where was he looking? He was looking in the future. That's what it says. It says, who for the joy that was set before him, the future, endured the cross. And then now, where is he, where is he at? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know what? If you have joined the race, then what is your ending point? It's to be in the throne room of God. When we think about all that God has in store for us in heaven, can that help us endure the things that we're going through today? I, and I don't know, some of you might be going through some, some rough things. Uh, uh, I don't know what it is. A, a friend of mine, he was one of my professors. I just read about this week that he passed away. He had cancer. He's still young. But as I was reading about his testimony, he said he can endure the knowledge of his coming death. Why? Because he was looking forward to the glorious hope that God had already promised him. So I don't know what you're going through. Maybe even finding out that it's near the end of your life. I don't know. But if you join the race, and you're on the Christian race, you're going to love the final destination. Amen? And that should give us the motivation when we follow Christ. That's the kind of thing that, that, uh, that he endured. And, and so it, it's going to help us see that it's not just something that he can do, but that same model does apply to other people. In fact, if we go back to chapter 11, and uh, in, in verse 32, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 11, verse 32, um, uh, it says, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to, t- uh, to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. So he's talking about all the great things the great men of faith have done. But they didn't just do great things. They went through some rough times too. Let's continue in verse 34. They quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness, they were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to, to flight, or excuse me, to fight uh, armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. See what they were doing? They endured the torture because of the hope of the resurrection. Verse 36, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Do you get the picture? Part of the Christian race is going to be rough. It's going to be tough. And if you do join on, it is going to be rough, but it is so worth it. It is so worth it to have a relationship with your creator. Not just for this lifetime, but for an eternity. Isn't that an exciting thought? And I don't know what you're going through, but I hope that no one has threatened to saw you in two this week. Or to scourge you and mock you. And they, well, they do mock us, don't they? But whatever you're going through, keep your mind on the fact that Jesus Christ is the model. He endured more than that for us. And when we focus on the future, what God has for us, we can do it. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment.
And as we, as we bring the service to a close, I first just want to ask you, have you joined the race? And are you sure that you've joined the race? Maybe you thought because you said a prayer as a child or something that you said the race, but now upon looking at it, the Holy Spirit has shown you today through His Word that maybe the faith you've had to this point was a simple faith and not a saving faith. Now, I'm not intending to embarrass anyone here today. That's not my point. But if that's you, I don't want you to leave today without knowing for sure that you're in the race. And would you do me just a small favor and just look up at me? I'm not going to embarrass you, but if there's anyone here that say, you know what, this, uh, that's me. I am not saved, and I don't want to leave today without knowing for sure. Just anyone in that position. I'm going to extend that invitation as well, that when we're done, I know we're going to have just a short break between now and when we get together, but I will make sure we connect you with someone who can tell you from God's word how you can have a relationship with God. For those of you who do know for sure you're saved, you're, you're not doubting that, you know that. Is there a sin in your life or a weight that you need to get rid of? Is there something in your life that you know is slowing you down in the Christian race? I'd like to ask you, that just as we pray in a moment, to confess that to God and surrender that to Him. Say, Lord, I give this to you, whether it's a sin or a weight. Or maybe you have not been running the course that God has laid before you. Maybe you've just felt like the shortcuts to joy are, are going to produce what Satan tells you they're going to produce. Surrender that to the Lord today as well as we pray in a moment. Or maybe you're just tired. You've been running the Christian race. And just like a runner, starting to get some cramps, and things are sore, muscles are sore. Keep running. Keep running. Focus on Jesus. He'll help you get to the end. So that you can do, you can say what Paul said at the end of his life. And I'm just going to read these last verses and then I'll pray. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, he wrote, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And that's, what I, that's my desire for every one of us, to finish the race strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the way it, it shows us the errors of our ways. And Lord, if there's anyone here today, I pray that you would use your word to show them not genuinely one of your children, and that they could stand before you one day and hear the words, depart from me, and Lord, may that never happen to anyone here. And for those of us who are in the race, Lord, help us to lay aside all the things in the world that Satan has to offer so that we can follow the course that you've laid out for us and finish the race strong. I pray this in Christ's name. Well, thanks for staying. Um, I hate to say we'll try and be brief because this is very important. And um, as Dennis and Tim were on the hot seat, I think Dave's going to be a little on the hot seat this morning. So maybe not as intense, but um, 
definitely going to have some questions for them. Um, just to recap a little bit, I wanted to take like two minutes here. You know, a timeline of the process. This started back December, I think. We opened up. We opened up for resumes. We we uh, you know today's June first, so that's almost six months ago. We had 180 resumes, roughly. We willed it down to 90. We reviewed that were re reviewable resumes. We reviewed 90 resumes. Um, 24 of the candidates out of that 90 got questionnaires, and then we also reviewed their sermons. So from there, we turned it into top five, and out of the top five, Dave has made it to our top candidate, which has been going on since right before spring break, I think, right around there. So. Even that process has been intense, and uh, we are doing due diligence. And just thank you for your patience. It's been a it's been a process, and um, no God's in it. So it's it's been awesome to see um, the questionnaire process. You guys had I think roughly two weeks to submit some questions. There are between thirty and forty of you that did submit questions, and then the pastoral staff took those questions broke them into three different categories that we'll be asking today. Um, those are theological, personal, and philosophical questions. So we'll go through those. Um, I think Dave and Monica kind of wanted to give a brief testimony before we get into that, so I think I'll, I'll let them come up. As, as they're making their way up, I just want to pray for this time. Um, it's important, and uh, I guess be patient through the next two and a half hours that we'll be here. So. <laughs> Let's pray. God, I just thank you for this opportunity that we have as a church to uh, potentially enter into an, another journey of what you've directed us, Lord. I thank you for the process. I thank you for the leadership of uh, Pastor Larry and the current pastors that we have as well. Thank you for each deacon that's been involved with this and the pastoral search team. Um, what a process that it's been, and I just uh, appreciate it. Uh, knowing that we've done due diligence, and uh, we know that you're in it, and we'll see your hand in it through the next week here. God, give uh, Dave and Monica calm hearts and uh, calm minds as they speak, and uh, give us all clarity of mind as well as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Well, you have, at least hopefully, have had a chance to look at the, the, the profile and uh, there are some updates. Our kids have just gone through their birthday season. <laughs> so uh, all the kids all, uh, are pretty much one year older than these. But you know what? Um, uh, it's been a great chance for me to get to know you, and we're going to talk a little bit more. But Monica hasn't had a chance to share her testimony. So, um, so I'm going to ask her to just share uh, her testimony. Good morning. Um, usually he starts off, so I'll go ahead and start off this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know, Dave and I um, were missionaries and are currently uh, in the stateside, and, and our backgrounds are very different from how we grew up. Dave was um, a pastor's kid and grew up in the same church. His dad was our pastor for 35 years, and I grew up in a very different home. Um, I grew up in what I like to call a non-practicing Roman Catholic family. My mom was one of 17 children, and my grandma was very devout. However, that kind of trickled down through her kids. And so I think I grew up with the idea of a God and a moral value system, but it didn't really affect my personal life. And um, 
I grew up with an alcoholic father, and so through the years, that kind of abuse eventually wore my mom down to where when I was a teenager, she just had a complete breakdown. And God was using that in my life to kind of make my heart real fertile to him that when I went to school at Western Michigan University, um, I was uh, put around some people, and I started getting into the typical college life and really doing some things that I, I shouldn't have been doing. And at that point, and I didn't know Dave was going to use these verses because that's the verses that God used in my life. Uh, a friend of mine, we were getting ready to go out for um, just a night of hanging out, and there was a Bible study in her room. Somebody, I think, was trying to reach her, and they were studying Matthew 7, 21 through 23, which you heard this morning. And when I heard those verses, it kind of stuck in my mind because up until this point, my worldview had kind of been more of a works salvation, kind of like if I was a good person, then I was right with God. But in reality, my idea of what a good person was quite different from the standards of what God had. And so when I read those verses, I thought, hmm, they're casting out demons and performing miracles, and still God says, away from me you evildoers. And, and I thought, okay, I'm not doing anything near so good. Maybe my standing with God isn't okay. And so that's when I really started to look into um, what it means to know God. Because at the end of the verse, it says he never knew them. They never knew God. And so I thought, well, what does that mean? And so through the help of a campus ministry at Western, as well as um, Bethel Baptist Church, um, that's how I came to know Christ my sophomore year at Western. And so uh, my family doesn't know Christ, and it's a very different environment than what Dave grew up. But I think he brought us in this relationship together where we just see things and have these perspectives that really enhances us in our relationship. Um, I studied audiology, so I know a little bit of sign language there. I'll have to practice afterwards. I thought this was kind of a little funny story, but I was taking some sign language when we had a deaf ministry, and that's when Dave and I started dating, and so he thought it would impress me if he secretly learned. <laughs> and so he knows a little bit, too. But, but I have to practice. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so uh, when, when I, I went to Western um, I started getting interested. I had several international roommates, and I think God used that in my life to really put a burden of missions on, on my heart. And I met Dave, and I thought, you know, well, he's in full-time, you know, Christian ministry. And so at that time, we started serving um, as, after I graduated in a church, as a Christian education pastor. But God eventually used that in his uh, short-term trip experience, too, to bring us to missions. So, and we're here. So maybe we grab some chairs or something? Sure, if you want. Right, that's, that's, you move that, I'll grab chairs. Okay, all right. It just seems weird to stand next to somebody and ask questions like that. Like, I'm, I don't know, maybe you guys don't think that, but I do. <laughs> that I'm not going to stand for two and a half hours. <laughs> all right, so I guess we'll just get rolling. And I know I think Dave's had a chance to review some of these questions, so um, he may have some some brief, brief answers here, but uh, we'll start with the theological category. Um, there's three questions that pastors narrowed down to that, and I need to keep looking up in the balcony. I'm not used to seeing it so full, so sorry. Um, 
Question one, what do you believe the Bible teaches regarding the function of pastors, deacons, and church members? Um, I think that uh, really if you look at the names or the titles for what pastors are in the New Testament, that really helps you understand. Uh, I just jotted down a few of those. Uh, the word that we find uh, elder, or in Greek it's presbyteros, it, it means the one who rules or governs. So that does imply also that there's been experience, why it's the word elder, uh, because experience tends to flow from those with more age down, and so uh, there is a sense of that. Uh, the word that we find uh, bishop or episkopos literally means an overseer. So I do think that part of a pastor's job is overseeing um, uh, the flock. And um, my favorite one is the word pastor, which is actually just a common word for, for shepherd. And, um, and that really gives an idea of leading, guiding, protecting. Just so many images come out of that word. And, um, and so that's why I really like that word. So there is some implied authority uh, in that. In fact, First, First Timothy 5.17 does talk about the elders who rule. And so there is some authority in that. Uh, Hebrews 13.17 tells us to obey uh, our leaders. Uh, of course, that's limited to the context of, of the, the authority that's delegated to them. And, um, but, uh, but it also, in uh, 2 Timothy 1, t- says that part of the role of the pastor is, is to preach the word. And so it has to be a man of the word. And that is getting the word of God, not to be up here and preach my word, my opinion, but to preach the word to you. And I think that is a, that is a major role. In fact, in Acts 6-4, where it distinguishes between the, the roles of a deacon and a pastor, it's the passage when deacons really came into existence. He said that to have deacons so that the other leaders could focus on two things, the ministry of the word and prayer. I think you can kind of sum it up in those two words. The ministry of the word, whether it's preaching, teaching, counseling, that's all taking God's word and applying it to life. Um, then uh, the ministry of prayer, I think, is an important part as well, where we need to spend time praying for you. And uh, uh, we don't take that lightly. My dad was a pastor, and uh, I served on staff with him. And that was a part of our regular routine, was praying through the, the, the names of the, the people in the congregation. And uh, that would be a big part of... Uh, of what I would do if the Lord calls us here. I think for deacons, as we can see in the Acts 6 passage as well, uh, the primary role of the deacon is, is to serve. Right? The word deacon means to serve. And so they served in that context so that the other leaders could focus on the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer. At the same time, I do believe there's some authority that can go with that because, uh, well, for one, they elected only men in Acts 6. That implies that there were some reasons for uh, there was uh, some authority implied, and they were in charge of the distribution of food. I think there's a lot of freedoms as to what that role actually is. The Bible never says they have to do this exact thing, but that the purpose never changes, and the purpose is to help run the the uh, the church in such a way that the pastors can focus on their role. And so, um, and then I like the fact that the question also mentioned members, because a lot of people ask about the leaders. But I think it's so important, this concept of members. And if you look at Ephesians 4, 17, um, it talks about the leaders. God gave evangelists and so on, uh, and apostles, evangelists, pastor teachers, for the purpose of raising up the saints, for the purpose of getting everyone involved. The best analogy I can give you is that I don't believe church members are spectators. Uh, and and the, the room kind of sets up like that on a Sunday morning for a few minutes every, you know, less an hour or so per week. But in reality, that's... That's just one function of the church. Really, as a church, 
we are the church. And I hope we believe that. And that we're not, we're not spectators, we're players. And that's a big part of it. And so uh, I think that that is a key function uh, of church members. All right. Uh, question number two under theological. In light of Ephesians 4.11, do you believe there is a distinction between pastor and teacher? Yep. Um, in, in Ephesians 4, that's one of my favorite passages. Really, the, if you look, and I don't want to get into the, the, the Greek construct and all of that, but suffice it to say that it is, it's, it's the pastor slash teacher. It's a pastor who teaches in the, in the context. Trying to tr- figure out exactly what's, what's behind the question, I think there's a, uh, a sense of different styles of communication. But, you know, I believe that the, the, the most important thing isn't the style. I think the most important thing is getting God's word into our hearts and lives. And that's, that's what I, I believe is the most important thing. At the church plant that we left in, in, in Costa Rica, uh, right now there are six people who preach. There, there are three who are on staff as pastors, but they're raising up three new pastors so that they can go start the next church. And so they're giving them experience preaching. And so one of the, one of the members told me the last time I was down there, she said, you know what I love about the church is that I go to church not knowing who's going to preach because it forces me to just know I'm there to hear God's word not to hear my favorite preacher. And I just thought that was a great attitude. Um, but uh, that might be what's behind that question. Great. Number three, do you believe the Bible limits the role of women in the church? If so, how? Yeah, I believe that the Bible limits the role of women, but not the value of women. Uh, I believe that, that women are an essential part. In fact, women are heroes. If you read the, the Hebrews 11 passage, there are women who are heroes of the faith. But it does, uh, the, the Bible does clearly say in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through uh, 15, that there is some limited authority over the men. And, and uh, so in the context of teaching and in the context of authority, um, so I do believe that that would eliminate the possibility of being a pastor or a deacon. But by, by no means does that mean that they're less in value. Um, in fact, that idea that authority and a value go hand in hand, that's a completely human concept. Even the, even the apostles started thinking that way when they were wondering who's going to have most authority, right? Remember who's going to be on the right side of uh, Christ? And uh, Jesus said, uh, it's the servant, whoever serves the most. And so uh, the idea of, of authority and, and value being the same, that's a human concept. So, uh, so I believe that there are some limits in authority, but that's just role. That's not, that's not value. So Monica will be preaching or not preaching? I think that's what they really <laughs> want to know. I think that's what they want to know. No? Okay. She might preach to me. I don't know. <laughs> no. All right. Uh, that wraps up theological questions. The personal questions, what are your spiritual gifts? You know, there, there are three lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, and none of them are exact, exactly the same. So I, I think that uh, none of them were meant to be exhausted. But if you look at the three lists, uh, the one in Romans... Uh, I would say that, that it, the words teaching and leading, those two, um, I love to teach God's word in whatever way that I can. Whether it's one-on-one or, or from the pulpit, I love to teach God's word. Um, and leading, I love leadership. I believe, I've been talking about this a lot with the, the deacons, but I believe in what we call servant leadership. Leadership is a form of service. And authority doesn't exist for the person in charge. He has that authority so that he can serve the people. And, uh, and so I would say those two. The second uh, list in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, found another list, and I would use the word wisdom there. I think in the, the idea in the context of, 
places of discernment. Um, uh, I, I try not to be the type of person who just makes all of the decisions on my own. Uh, I try to seek out wisdom. And I think even Solomon had his own advisors, and he was the wisest man aside from Christ, right? So, um, so I think that, that uh, uh, wisdom, and look how to look for wisdom using, uh, using people uh, that God has placed in, in our lives, too. And then in the uh, Ephesians 4, 11-13, I would say the pastor-teacher. Um, that would be my, my spiritual gift there, the shepherding. I love, I love shepherding my family. I love shepherding God's flock. Number two, what led you to leave the mission field to become a servant leader in the States? Mm-hmm. I would actually correct the question just a hair. I know that's probably not right, but I would say, in a sense, I did not leave the mission field in Costa Rica to come to the United States. I went from one mission field to another. Amen? And uh, there are unsaved people everywhere we go in this world, and uh, that includes the United States. And in fact, in many cases, I think the United States has even gone further from where they need to be uh, and and uh, then a lot of the fields where we minister. Uh, and so um, so I would say, though, from a human perspective, uh, our, our desire was to stay in Central America. That was, that was our desire. The Lord used multiple things, but the main thing that he used was my wife's uh, illness. She developed some autoimmune uh, um, diseases. And, and, and at the same time, we look at that and say, is God sovereign? He absolutely is. And now that we've come back, we've actually been back for a few years now, but we, we, now that we've come back to the United States, we can see how God took us through the experiences that he did in the mission field to, to shape and form our, our ministry philosophy to hit the needs that are happening right here in the United States. And, uh, and part of that is to reach a multicultural world. And as we looked at the, at the, the area, we did some research ourselves on the area, there are a lot of people from a lot of different cultures and ethnicities right here in right here in Kentwood. Isn't that true? It's a mission field, I believe, right here as well. And so uh, we're excited about that, and we're, we're, seeing, we're looking forward to seeing what God would have for us. Number three, what are your daily prayer and Bible study habits? My Every day, I start with prayer. At the very beginning, it's short and sweet. Uh, it's a, like a 30 second to a minute. But even before I do anything else, I want to at least have my first thoughts to be on God. Um, I try in the mornings to help out as much as I, as much as I can uh, to get the kids ready for school and so on. And then we have a Bible uh, family devotion time before we send the kids off to school. And so we send them off to school, and then uh, my wife and I will sit down and we'll pray together. And that's where we pray together for the needs mostly of the family, direction, <coughs> things like that. Then it's after that that I usually go to my office. And, uh, and there I'll spend a more extended time reading God's word and praying with him and just seeking, seeking him. And so to me, that, that's how I start my mornings. And, uh, uh, you know, it reminds me of a, of a saying that someone had once said. He said, Lord, uh, today I've got so many meetings that I'm just super busy. And I've got uh, some big decisions I've got to make today. And I've got more things on, on my plate that I can handle in a 24-hour period. So instead of spending a half hour with you this morning, Lord, I need to spend at least two hours. <laughs> There's some truth to that, where I think the more we get busy with things, the more actually we need to step back and focus on prayer. Does he help in the morning? Is that true? Okay, all right. <laughs> he said that, and, you know, what, what's our male help sometimes is, Get out of bed! <laughs> 
I helped my wife this morning. <laughs> that wraps up personal, uh, philosophical. What is your philosophy of invitations? You know, I, I do believe that it is important to give people the opportunity to respond. During, during a service or during a class or, or during a personal conversation, we have to give people the opportunity to respond and not just give them the truth because oftentimes we just mull over the truth and we go out the door and other things distract us. But if we have an opportunity to say, you know, I'm going to make a decision today, then we, we need to do that. I don't have a personal philosophy in the sense of, of a method. I don't have a, a particular method that I use every time, like whether it's raising hands or coming forward or, or looking up at me or, or whatever it might be. But I try to make sure there's some opportunity to respond. And if there's an opportunity to give some of the gospel, then I'll take it. Hopefully, that's the way we all feel in our conversations at work as well, is that if there's an opportunity to give the gospel, then we, we should do that as well. Number two, what role do you envision our current pastors playing in the leadership of HBC? Um, I, I put it into three categories, really. Um, I have a very, uh, what I call a team-based philosophy of leadership. And so, um, as opposed to some models where one person makes all of the decisions of kind of a, as a king, I, that's not the way that I function as a team. I believe that God gives leaders a complementary set of skills. And I just enjoy seeing how God puts those skills together. And so... At, with the team-based philosophy of leadership, I think that w one category of their influence would be in developing the values, vision, and mission of the church. As we, as we would get together and think through, well, where is God taking the church? We all know that. He's given us the Great Commission. How is that going to translate into reaching the people right where we're at? And so that's something that we, I'm sure we'd have to have a lot of prayer and a lot of time together. But they would have a crucial role. In that, I would include the deacons in some of that as well because they know you and, and, uh, and they have a heart for this place. They have a heart for this church. So um, I would include them in, in seeking, uh, seeking some of that. The second thing I would say uh, that as, as equals, there's a sentence in which I would apply the Proverbs 27, 17 where it says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of a friend. So I would say the, the first level is developing the vision and mission of the church. That second area would be in, in, a, in a leadership accountability. Uh, I, I believe strongly that, that every one of us are sinners, including leaders. And even, though, even shepherds in churches are sheep. And so we need each other. And, we, and so I would want to create an atmosphere where we could hold each other accountable spiritually. I had already told them uh, when, when I met with them that... I would invite them to look at my computer and see what's on my computer at any time. And, and, you know, whether they take me up on that offer isn't the point. The point is, at that level, we should be open with each other and be able to come to each other and say, I'm struggling in this area. Can you help me with this? And, uh, and uh, have, have an atmosphere where we build each other up. And, uh, and I think that's important. And, then, and the third area would be in the area of their own personal giftedness. And so each person would have their own role. For example, pastor of student ministries, pastor of worship, let them continue to do what they're doing in their areas of giftedness. And, uh, and then as a team, just uh, we, we would try to marginalize our weaknesses by, by maximizing our strengths as a team. And I, I see that that is an important part. The seat's a little colder now, probably. We're getting close to the end. <laughs> All right. Number four under philosophical, what evangelistic and discipleship models have you found to be effective in the Midwest? 
I'll, I'll divide those into two categories, the evangelism and discipleship. Uh, with, with evangelism, I believe the best tool really is a, is a person who loves his neighbor enough to share Jesus Christ with them. It's re- you are the tools of personal evangelism. And when they see your lives change, they'll see that. With that being said, uh, here's some of the ones that we've used and that we've seen success with. Uh, we've used The Way of the Master by Kurt Cameron and Ray Comfort. Uh, in Costa Rica, we've used that, and it just helped our people learn how to develop, a, how to go into a spiritual conversation and go from a normal conversation to talking about things that matter. And um, so that was helpful. Also, the story of hope, it's put out actually by the mission agency that we're with right now, but it's more of a chronological approach. And we found that really helpful is you do Bible studies and you work through 40 stories of the Bible. And, and it's just, it's, it's really exciting to see the lights just come on. And uh, um, we've seen great fruits with that. In fact, uh, I had the opportunity to lead a man to the Lord with that that has, is now one of the pastors in Roca Viva using the story of hope. Um, I think come and see events where the church gets out into the community and they, they do things and they say, come and see what we're doing here. And we give gospel presentations here. Um, I think personal evangelism training, uh, where we train people. Uh, I put one more on there. I put defending the faith. Uh, it does, when the ser- with the servant leaders ministry that we do, uh, we have a class on defending the faith because when we, when we ask people what's the number one reason why you're not witnessing, it was they felt like people might ask questions they're not ready for the answers to. So, we th- well, then let's get the answers. Let's put it uh, together and, and, uh, and do that. So, so there are several tools out there for evangelism, for discipleship. That's, that's, that's one of the things that really excites me. That's one of the things that we've been doing through servant leaders for a long time. And so we have uh, materials that we've developed, that we've borrowed, that we've used, you know, get, do, that we've collected from all sorts of people to really work through a disciple relationship to, to take people not just through the early stages of their salvation, of, you know, once they come to know the Lord, but really through life, level two's ministry, then leadership, and then a mobilized leadership. So really taking people from salvation and discipling them all the way through to reproduction. And so that's what, we, uh, that's what we've been doing with servant leaders, and that's, that's part of my philosophy of ministry, is in reproduction. I like the way Pastor Larry put it, discipling people so they can disciple others. And um, that's really at the, heart, uh, the, at the heart of that. Number five, I don't know how long this one will take. Do you have a vision for the future of HBC? Probably have a PowerPoint and everything for that, right? <laughs> I would love to, uh, but uh, really at this point, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call what I have as, as a vision. I would say it's more of a direction. I think a vision is something that is going to have a clearer picture of what it's going to look like. Um, that and that's going to have to be developed as we talk with you and, and see what is God doing in your hearts. What is God? You know, I believe that he, he's doing things in, in people's hearts already. What is he doing with the deacons? What is he doing with the pastors? What's the direction? And as we work through those things, um, uh, I believe that God is going to clarify that vision. But I will say this as far as direction goes. Uh, using some of the terminology that I saw on the website, um, the reaching, reaching up, reaching in, reaching out, um, I think reaching up has got to be essential. We've got to do some, some connecting and some reconnecting maybe in some cases. Uh, to, to our creator. We've got to connect to him. And so I believe that prayer has got to be one of the first priorities is, is getting on our knees and saying, Lord, how do you want us to fulfill the Great Commission right here? And uh, who, who have you put in our neighborhoods that we can worship, uh, or so that we can worship him through bringing souls to the Lord? I, I, there's no better way 
to do that. And so I think reaching up, reaching in, I think there has to be a time of spiritual edification, spiritual healing that, that, that needs to take place. Um, some have been running the race for a long time. And uh, I think we need some, some time to focus on how do we edify the body that we have right here too. And if I were to ask you, how many of you have some hurts in your own life right now, some things that you're struggling with, probably the majority of us would raise our hands. And uh, I think we need to spend some time doing that. And then reaching out. Um, I don't want to be the church's, or I don't want to just be, I should say, the church's servant leader. I want to be the servant leader. But I want to be a church that produces servant leaders. See, you understand the, the difference there? It's, it's, I want to be a church where, where we are developing servant leaders. And so that is by nature going to explode in, in outreach. You're going to reach, we're going to reach our neighbors. We're going to reach uh, the people around us. I, I see us uh, raising up servant leaders that would eventually have an impact in, in this community and then beyond, maybe even planting some churches. Interesting thoughts there, right? Or even sending missionaries. I, mean, I can see that there's missions on your heart. I can see that all the way around this room. See, see flags all over. And I, sh- I can see that your hearts are in reaching people for Christ. And that's one of the things that has drawn me here. But I think we could even send missionaries from here to some of these places. And I, I personally don't measure success just by numbers. When I came back from, from uh, Costa Rica, that was one of the things that bothered me the most. Is I would even talk to my friends, people I graduated from from college and seminary with, and I say, how is your church doing? And they always answered me with two things, their numbers and their tithes and offerings. <laughs> you know? And I thought, that's, that's horrible. Uh, that's really not how we should be evaluating. We should be looking at how we're influencing the world for Jesus Christ. Amen. And some of that isn't going to happen right inside this room. Some of that's going to be in our children, our sons and daughters that don't stay here, but take the gospel to new places. And so I'm excited about that. And, um, and so I have a real, obviously I have a real heart for, for missions, but I see that as just an extension of our heart for people. If we become servant leaders, following the model, which was Jesus Christ. Yeah, that other stuff is just byproducts, numbers, ties. It's all byproducts of prior to what you just said. Um, that wraps up what is the pastors have put together. I do have one more. I think it's important for him to touch on this. We briefly talked about it, but we're multi-generational, and it's important that he touches on this, I think. And it was in the frequently asked questions for the profile that was set out to the Welcome Center, and the question was, will he throw the older and or younger generations under the bus? And when we briefly talked, he, you know, I think I had said, well, this was one of the things, because I don't think he saw the profile that we had set out there, and I had mentioned it to him, and he said, he went on, like, he just started explaining, well, yeah, I think. And I said, that's a question I'm going to ask because that's a pa- you're passionate about that. So Yeah, yeah I actually didn't see the uh, profile until today, so uh, uh, this morning. But, um, but you know what? Uh, I do think that's an important question. And there are really two, two ways I'd like to answer it. One is just from my personality, and the other way I'd like to answer it theologically. Uh, but from my personality, I've always enjoyed various age groups. My mom was a, a nurse, and uh, she worked at a nursing home that shared a parking lot with the Christian school where I went to, went to school. And she wouldn't get out until 4, 4.30 sometimes, and I would get out at 3.15. And so I, uh, she always felt bad about that, saying, well, I can't take you home until 
mom, don't worry about it. I am loving your patients. <laughs> and uh, I would go in there and I would just hang out with the patients. Now, by no means saying that uh, by older folks, you're all ready for the nursing home, right? <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I loved it. And, uh, and my wife feels the same way. Uh, she, she loved working at the VA hospital. I know that there's a lot of things going on in the VA right now, but, uh, um, but when uh, she worked in the VA hospital, she just loved it as well. I loved talking to people. I'd heard some of the, the coolest stories from World War II and so on. I just, I loved it. So that's my personality. I enjoy uh, learning and, and, uh, and learning from, from, the, from the generations. But at the same time, I love kids. I was a youth pastor. I love working with kids. I heard that, uh, you know, Pastor Tim sharing so that he's got a busy summer. And uh, it's awesome. I'd love to join him on some things. That's, just, that's where my mind goes. Um, but I also think from a theological standpoint, it's an important thing. You know, the Bible says clearly... Are you thinking you need a sponsor for the bike trip or something? Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, it would require someone with a good bike to help me out because... Uh... Okay. All right. So... Did, I just, did I just sign up for something there? Cool. Uh, but, uh, but I also think from a theological standpoint, it's an important thing. Uh, Bible is very clear. If you read Proverbs from start to finish, you cannot escape the idea that wisdom does tend to flow from the older generation to the younger generation. So if we're going to ignore that, then we're in trouble. Amen? Okay, hopefully it wasn't just the older people saying amen there. Hopefully that's the younger people saying amen there too. But it is true. Uh, and at, at the same time, I read in, in, uh, where Paul said to Timothy, don't despise your youth, but be an example. And, and, you know, there are, there are things that, that young blood can bring into a relationship that, that help us understand things, too. And, uh, and so, you know, I feel, you know, I feel like I connect to both. Uh, I, I'm pretty active. I'm athletic. I, I love, uh, I, in fact, I feel like I can do all the things I could do in my 20s. I just have to stretch before and after now. <laughs> so I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. But, you know, um, but biblically, I think we need each other. And that's going to show up in everything that we do, whether from music choices to the way we dress to the, to the way we talk to the words we use. And, and we have to learn to respect each other and learn from each other. Amen? And uh, that's really what it's all about. And, and if I could even go on just here for it, I, know, I don't know what time we're hoping to get out of here, but, um, but if I could just say to you that I, I've seen a lot of churches move towards avoiding all conflict by, um, by just separating the, gen the, the generations or by separating the ethnicities or by separating people into all of these different groups so that you can avoid as many uh, conflicts as possible. And uh, one thing that, that we've taught at Servant Leaders, and if, if, uh, you'll probably hear me say many times again if, if the Lord has me stay, that conflicts do not split churches. Poor management of conflicts split churches. Conflicts, God has used conflicts to help us grow. And I, I think, for example, music or dress and so on, when, when we are willing to say, I will worship God, even with a style that isn't my own, because I see my brother and sister, and I see how it's helping my brother and sister love God, and they do the same thing for me, that, that's music to God's ears, isn't it? When we have a heart of worship, and, and it's not about my preference, it's about God's preference. 
that, that's what I'm all about. And, and so I, 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 I don't personally come with any agenda, for example, with music. I don't want to push it one way, but I want to push it the other way. I just want to see us as a family worshiping God together. And however we can do that, that's what I, that's what I want to do.